you turn to Gospel of John, chapter 10? We'll be reading verse 22 down to the end of the chapter. John 10, John 22, it says, <clears throat> excuse me, at that time the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world you are blaspheming, because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you because it is in your word that we come to know who you are. So, Father, I pray that you would help us this morning to know you even just a little bit more through your word and that this knowledge would equip us and transform us, encourage us, and help us in the ways that we need most, in the ways that you see fit. Speak to us, we pray this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Is Jesus the Son of God? And if so, why does it matter in relation, specifically with regards to this text? The New Testament letters, and even the Old as well, were written for a specific purpose, right? It's the job of the reader and the one who is a student of the Word of God to try to discern, well, what is the purpose behind the letter? 
but you have to take into consideration different uh, cultural and literary context, and you have to understand maybe perhaps the, the situation that the church was experiencing that perhaps generated the reason behind the letter. And the gospel letters are no different. And we have to try to figure out what that purpose is. And thankfully, in the Gospel of John, the author tells us very plainly what is his purpose in writing the letter. And you see this in John 20, verse 30, where it says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So there it is. Why was the Gospel of John written? So that the reader may come to know and understand that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and have life in his name. And so the purpose is to generate faith, right, with the work of the Holy Spirit, of course. And so the author wants people to believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. Because by believing in the Son of God, well, then we have eternal life. Right? We are given this eternal life. This is not a hypothetical eternal life, as in a figurative, as in meaning that we get this prosperous and a wonderful and peaceful life here in this world. But it's talking about a longevity of life, an eternal life, a life of immortality that you will live on with God forever and ever and ever. It's an actual, actual reality. That's what we receive when we believe in Jesus Christ. But according to this passage, there is another reason why we should believe in Jesus as the Son of God. Now, in the passage, Jesus is charged with blasphemy because he says that I and the Father are one. And so they pick up stone to stone Jesus, the Jews, those who were most opposed to Jesus, which, most, uh, which consisted of probably some people from the crowds, but, most, but most, mostly it was the religious teachers they picked up stones because they said, well, how can you, a man, make yourself to be God? And according to the laws and tradition, well, yes, somebody who takes the name of God and blasphemes in that way should be stoned. But then Jesus aims to, he, he seeks to, um, to, uh, to prove his innocence. And for that, he cites an Old Testament scripture. And that's it coming from Psalm 82. And so it's kind of an odd passage, but Psalm 82, so you have some context. Again, this is a passage that Jesus is quoting to prove his innocence. In Psalm 82, it reads, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit the nations. So there's at least a few different interpretations of this passage and how Jesus, is, how Jesus uses it. But this is... I think, how Jesus intends to use it. So in Psalm 82, right, God calls these other human beings gods. Right, he says, you are gods, sons of the Most High. 
And so this is kind of a, a judgment that God has towards these so-called gods, lowercase g. And these gods, I think, are the leaders and the teachers of Israel, those who are tasked with shepherding the flock of God, those who are tasked with nurturing and protecting and feeding God's flock. They have been given the word in order to, to impart knowledge and understanding about God to the people. And so in that sense, they're in an authoritative position. In that sense, they're God's lowercase g. And so there's a judgment upon them because they are not doing what they're supposed to do, where they're acting wickedly. They're not protecting the weak. And then last week, we look at the first half of John chapter 10, where Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd in comparison to the thieves and the hirelings and the robbers who are supposed to be the religious teachers. And the thieves and the robbers, right, they don't care anything about the sheep even though they're supposed to be shepherds over the people of God. But they're not doing so. They're acting wickedly. Jesus says that they are guilty, that they are blind. And so it is these individuals, it is the religious teachers, the leaders of Israel who are considered shepherds but are acting like robbers and thieves and are also considered gods, lowercase g. So how does Jesus aim to prove his innocence? Well, there's the first premise that God calls human beings gods, right? So there's premise one. The second premise is that the scriptures cannot be broken, right? That God has written his word and that nothing, that there's nothing, there's no falsehood in the scriptures, that everything that the word says is absolutely true because God wrote the scriptures. And the third premise is that, well, Jesus has been consecrated by God or set apart by God and sent by God. And so the conclusion is, well, then he's not wrong in saying that he is a son of God or claiming to be equal with God. But of course, they don't understand that. So then back to the original question, right? If God, if Jesus, is Jesus the son of God? And if so, why does it matter with relation to this particular passage? But what more is there to add? Right, we receive eternal life through Jesus Christ by professing him as the son of God, but we receive something more, something else that I see here in the passage. And so that's what I aim to kind of to, to show you this morning. Not only do we receive eternal life, but we receive something else. And so beginning with looking at Christ's claim to divinity, right? He says, I and the Father are one. He's making himself equal with God. So God... As the scriptures tell us, God is eternal. So for Jesus to say that I and the Father are one, he's saying that he is also eternal. Well, Psalm 90, verse 2, speaking about God, says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Romans 1.20 speaks of the eternal power of God and his divine nature. So there's the eternal, eternality of God and the divinity of God. And let's also not forget Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. How does that start out? It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So from the very beginning, Moses, the author of the book of Genesis, saw, aimed to establish the eternality of God, that in the beginning, God. That means that God had no beginning, that God was always there, and he created the world. So God is eternal. And the scriptures also tell us that Jesus is also eternal. Colossians 1.16 it says, for by him, that is by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, 
whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And right before that, in verse 15, 15, it says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And it tells us here that it was that Jesus was in the beginning with God, and it was through Jesus that all things were created through him and for him. In John chapter 1, verse 1, very similar to Genesis chapter 1, while the other gospel writers sought to begin the story of Jesus with, his, with, his, uh, with the virgin birth and establishing the, the humanity of Jesus Christ and looking at his upbringing, the gospel, the gospel writer of John sought to start even further than that. Let's go way beyond that. Let's go way past his earthly days. And he brings it back all the way to the very beginning, just like Moses did in the book of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So even John is just trying to establish the eternality of the Son of God. So Jesus is co-eternal with the Father. He shares in that same eternality. Not only that, but he he is also co-equal with the Father, or he shares in the same divinity, the same divine essence. And we see this particularly in three ways. His omnipresence, that Jesus is everywhere present. Ephesians 1.22, it says that God put all things under his feet, under the feet of Jesus, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Jesus fills all. Matthew 28, when Jesus sends out the 12 disciples to preach the gospel, he says, Lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. Right? Jesus was about to ascend back to the Father bodily to reign at the right hand of God. And he tells the disciples and all his disciples from there on after that he will always be with them, even until the end of the age. So Jesus is everywhere present. Not only that, but he's also omniscient. He knows all things, just as God knows all things. John 8, 26, Jesus says that he, whatever he declares, he heard from the Father. And then in John 21, when Jesus aims to restore Peter after Peter had abandoned the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus asked him three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And then at one time, Peter says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And then the story of the Samaritan woman that Jesus says, I know that the man that you are living with right now is not one that you are married to, right? She didn't tell him that. She didn't want him to know that. But Jesus knew that because he knows all things. And then Jesus is also omnipotent. He has the same power as God. So we've been walking through the Gospel of John. We've seen all of his signs and his works, right? The, 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 the lame walk, the blind receive their sight, he feeds thousands of people with just a few loaves of bread and some fish. And then next chapter, in chapter 11, in the Gospel of John, we see that Jesus even raises the dead back to life. And not only does he raise the, back, the dead back to life, but he raises himself back to life after being crucified and buried. The Jews gathered around him, verse 24, and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. And in verse 37, If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, 
Even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Right, you and I know how to detect hypocrisy. It's like we're hardwired to do that. When somebody presents themselves in a virtuous manner, saying that they are a good person, that they have these virtuous qualities about them, but then in a different context, we see that they are acting the total opposite. Right? We immediately detect hypocrisy or a liar. Because we are hardwired for truth, we value truth, we want to know the truth, we value consistency. Because that matters to us. But with Jesus, we can never say about Jesus, hypocrite. Because everything that Jesus says is consistent with the will of the Father. He even says that everything that he teaches is consistent with the Father. That everything that he says is according to the will of the Father. And everything that he does, that even if you don't believe his words, look at his works, look at his signs. And they are consistent with what the Father would do. Because he and the Father are one. So his works corroborate his identity. They prove that he is who he is. That he is not just a man who is supernaturally endowed with the Spirit of God and can do these things. But no, he's much more than that. He is the Son of God. That he is divine. That he is eternal. That he is omnipotent and omniscient. In John 6, 37, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. John 8, 28, Jesus says, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak, just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Jesus always does the will of the Father, and the will of the Father is that he shall lay down his life, that those believe in him would receive eternal life, and that they would be raised up on the last day. That even his own authority doesn't come from his own authority, but it comes from the authority of God the Father. So Jesus and the Father are one. Jesus is being honest. This is the reality, that Jesus and the Father are one. And what does this oneness with God mean? Jesus' oneness with the Father not only means that Jesus shares in these incommunicable attributes with God, that is, those attributes that he does not share with us, his divinity, his omnipresence, his omniscience, right? Those are things that we do not have. We're finite human beings. But this oneness with the Father not only means that Jesus shares in those same divine attributes, but it also means that they both are perfectly united in their will. Now, what do I mean by will? Will means inclination, desire, and purpose, the perfect harmony of will between God the Father and God the Son means that they both, use, they both use their eternality, their divine power, all for a singular purpose, for the salvation of man to the glory of God. That's what that oneness means. And it's hard to describe that oneness. There's really nothing in comparison to like it, not even in marriage, right, when you're considered to be one flesh, it doesn't really, it fails in comparison to the oneness that Jesus has with the Father. The only way I can really 
describe it, and maybe this doesn't really do justice to it, is when a child is separated from the mother. Right? If you ever had a, a toddler or an infant, if even the mom just walks over to the next room, the, the, the toddler is just in tears because they're separated from the mother, and then all heck breaks loose. Right? And it's, it's like this separation anxiety. Right? The, the, the child just wants to be with the mom, touch with the mom. It's like they want to be back in the womb because they were, in that sense, one with the mom. Jesus and the Father are one in essence. That even while Jesus is in a mortal body on earth, that he was still present with the Father in heaven because he is ever-present. He is all. He fills all things. He is everywhere, all at the same time. But it was the cross, the crucifixion, where he experienced that separation from God, which for him was agonizing. And it's agonizing because Jesus is truly one with the Father. And for that reason, he always does what is pleasing to the Father, which are, again, consistent with the works of the Father. So is Jesus the Son of God? The answer is yes. Jesus is the Son of God. So Jesus is, even though he did not have to prove his innocence by quoting an Old Testament scripture, because he truly is the Son of God. He is who he says he is, and his words and his works bear witness to his divine identity. Now, apart, aside from receiving eternal life in his name, what else do we receive according to this passage? Well, this salvation in Jesus Christ is, is an assurance for the believer. Verse 27, again it says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. We saw last week, Jesus lays down his life for the sheep. He dies for them. And when considering the crucifixion or this atonement, we understand the value of it and what it took for us to be saved. That gives us assurance. But how? Well, to understand the answer to that question, we need to understand the necessity of this crucifixion, that this must be the way that it was done. And because if God is omnipotent, he is all-powerful, he knows all things, then if there was another way for man to be saved, then there surely would have been a different way. But that fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins means that this was the only way to pay for the penalty of our sins. Sin is the contradiction of God, and God has to punish it with his divine justice. And either the guilty party suffers the punishment or somebody takes it for them. And Jesus, we know, took that for us. And so this cross, this crucifixion of Jesus Christ was absolutely necessary. And we also have to understand the nature of this of this atonement, of his crucifixion, of his death on the cross. 
to we have to understand just the value of it all. One Puritan pastor, uh, John Flavel, wrote uh, this hypothetical dialogue between God the Father and God the Son when thinking about how to save man from their sins. Again, it's hypothetical, but I think it's illuminating. And it goes like this. The Father says, My son, here is a company of poor, miserable souls that have utterly undone themselves and now lie open to my justice. Justice demands satisfaction for them or will satisfy itself in the eternal ruin of them. What shall be done for these souls? Oh, my Father, such is my love to and pity for them that, rather than they shall perish eternally, I will be responsible for them as their surety. Bring in all thy bills that I may see what they owe thee. Lord, bring them all in that there may be no after reckonings with them. At my hand shall you require it. I will rather choose to suffer thy wrath than they should suffer it. Upon me, my father, upon me be all their debt. But my son, if thou undertake for them, thou must reckon to pay the last mite or the last penny. I expect no abatements. If I spare them, I will not spare thee. Content, father, let it be so. Charge it all upon me. I am able to discharge it. And though it, it prove a kind of undoing to me, though it impoverish all my riches, empty all my treasures, yet I am content to undertake it. This wasn't a forced obedience. But this was a willful obedience. This was a choice that the Lord Jesus made. He didn't have to do this, but he did do it to save us from our sins, from the justice of God. Jesus was perfectly obedient, and it had to be him because only he could fulfill the demands of God and did much more than that. But he remained obedient to trials and tribulations, right, as he was praying and agonizing in the Garden of Gethsemane, where it was described that he was sweating drops of blood while the disciples were off sleeping when they should have been praying. He remained obedient. When he was arrested and brought to trial, he still remained obedient. When he was flogged and beaten and scarred and, put, and had a crown of thorns placed on his head, rather than calling a legion of angels to come and deliver him, rather than calling the earth to split open and swallow all the people up like God did in the Old Testament, Jesus instead remains obedient to the task, even to the point of death on the cross. So then, do you understand the magnitude of the sacrifice that secured your salvation? Do you realize the value of that which was lost in order to rescue you from the wrath of God? Now, do you think that after paying such a high price for your salvation, that God would just leave the rest up to you? That he would just simply say, good done, well done, my faithful son. Come into your heavenly abode, reign with me, and now it is up to you to make it up here. It is up to you to work for this eternal life, to, for you to enter the kingdom by your own strength. If it was up to us, we would have lost our salvation a long time ago. 
now we're ready to answer the question, if Jesus is the Son of God, why does it matter so much in relation to this text? What else do we receive apart from eternal life? And the answer is that we also receive eternal security. He says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So this eternal security is grounded in Jesus' oneness with the Father, that he is eternal with the Father, he is divine with the Father, that he is powerful like the Father is. And if the Father is greater than all, and no one can snatch anyone from the Father's hand, and Jesus is one with the Father, and that means that Jesus is, is great, that there is no one greater than Jesus. And that means that no one can snatch us from the hand of Jesus. I mean, just look back at your life. For some of you, you came to faith at an early age, and then maybe perhaps later on, maybe in your teenage years, you had some wanderings, you strayed away from the Lord, but then you came to a point where you... You were restored, you, you believed in the gospel once again, and you committed your life to following Jesus Christ. You can look back at your life, and how this speaks into that situation in your personal life is that, that the Lord has not lost me. That even though I had these years where I strayed far from the Lord and wanted nothing to do with Him, the reason I am here today, the reason that I am now a follower of Jesus Christ is because the Lord does not lose a single one of those who are His. And if maybe you came to faith at an early age and you never had those, those wanderings and those string away from the Lord, and that's the grace of God, that you can look back on your life and say that it is because the Lord has kept me and has preserved me through all those years, even up until this day. Or maybe you came to faith later on in life, maybe in your teens or early 20s or early 30s or whatever it is. And that's because the Lord does not lose a single one of those who are his. He doesn't. He brings back the lost sheep, and he keeps them a part of the fold. Romans 8.31, wonderful passage. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Right? God has already paid the penalty of our sins. There's nothing more to pay. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And verse 37 says, no, that none of these things can separate us from the love of Jesus Christ. Not a single one. Philippians 1.6 says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1 tells us that we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit of God who is the guarantee of our salvation. No, does that mean that we just let sin abound, that because we have this eternal security in God that we can that we are free to live our lives in whatever manner that we please? Of course not. Assurance, this gift of assurance, is not a passive state of being, that we just let it go, we just stand by, and just wait for our eternal security to be realized. But assurance 
is a gift of God that has to be proactively pursued. 2 Peter 1.5 says, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Then in verse 10, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Assurance is a gift given to the believer that you have to proactively pursue. And the only way to pursue it is by growing in these qualities that Peter is talking about in his passage. Growing in brotherly affection, growing in godliness, growing in your love for the Lord. These things give us a sense of assurance of our own salvation and eternal security in Jesus Christ. John 8, 29, Jesus says that God, that he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Even Jesus had the sense of assurance, even though he always had it because he is the son of God, because he is God. Nevertheless, he had this sense of assurance because he always did the things that are pleasing to him, and therefore he was assured that God is always with him. Now, you can have this assurance as well that God is always with you, by continuing to follow the Lord, by continuing to grow in your love for the Lord, by continuing to grow in your brotherly affection for brothers and sisters, by continuing to grow in godliness. Right, and it's not even something that we do on our own because the scriptures tell us that it is the work of the Spirit of God who both, uh, who wills us both to work, to will and to work for his good pleasure. So even when we desire to grow in our love for the Lord and grow in godliness, it's not just because we desire to, but it's also because the Spirit of God is working within us to want those things and to pursue those things. So Jesus died to give you eternal life and to give you this assurance of eternal security that he keeps you unto the very end. He's purchased you, and he's not going to lose you. 